Hi, I'm Jane Declare. Um, so, thank you so much all for coming. Um, I think this is going to be a really, really interesting session. And what we're going to do is hear first from Tim and then from Fiona and Sam. We're going to do those one after another. And again, we've got a nice long time at the end to really have your input, to have your questions and to get some discussion going. So... Um, then, just to say, just to sort of give you a bit of an incentive for the end, we're going to invite you all for a drink at the oldie Bank of England pub afterwards, so that's something to look forward to at around the 8 o'clock mark. Um, but uh, free, oh, I'm sorry, free drinks uh, at the EOD Bank of England. I'm sorry, that's a really important key word there. Um, but, um, so, uh, we can, I can tell you the directions at the end, but anyway... So we're going to start um, by hearing from Tim Newburn, who is Professor of Criminology and Social Policy here at the LSE. So over to you, Tim. Thank you. I'll maybe stand up. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Patrick. It's all, all, it's all loaded <laughs> already. So thank you, Patrick, and thank you, Jane. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. Um, it's very nice to be involved for a variety of reasons, partly because... Um, and not just because the people who are running it are here. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the LSE blogs, including the Impact blog, and uh, I think it's just one of the, one of the really nicest bits um, of the school. It's also nice to be involved because uh, fleetingly, on a couple of occasions, Fiona and I have sort of worked in the same place, almost, uh, but we haven't seen each other for a very long time, so it's a particular pleasure also to be involved for that reason. And I'm, all of that without me knowing that there were free drinks at, <laughs> at a pub called the Bank of England, which indeed is an old bank, so looking forward to that very much. Right, I'm going to say, whatever, 12 or 14 minutes worth of words on a project called Reading the Riots. Um, I'll say a word or two about the riots themselves, and then picking up this, the, the, this evening's um, theme and issues, I want to talk a little bit about the project, um, the, the idea of public social science, so how this project came to be, um, some of its characteristics, and then I'll, I'll finish with just a few reflections um, on what worked well, uh, or maybe not so well, um, uh, and in particular, just a few observations about doing research um, in partnership with a news organisation, which was the, very much the nature of this project. So, for a start, then, just uh, you probably need no reminder, but the 2011 riots, um, the spark was the shooting of a young black man, Mark Duggan, in North London by the police, um, and rumours that circulated in the immediate aftermath. Um, there were then protests, marches on Tottenham Police Station, I think widely accepted that the protests were not well handled by the police, indeed just a generally poorly handled per se. Um, those protests gradually descended into disorder, the disorder turned into riots. The riots started initially in North London and then spread across the capital city and then subsequent days outside of London in Manchester, Salford, Birmingham, Nottingham, Liverpool... Um, and one or two other smaller places, and fleetingly, um, and briefly in most of those other places. Tens of millions of pounds worth of damage, several people lost their lives, a huge number of people injured, thousands of people prosecuted, close to that, so close to thousands of people jailed. An extraordinary event at the time, played out as most events are now on our television screens, so... If you were fortunate enough not to be in the vicinity of any of the disorder, you will no doubt have seen it unfold. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a sociologist by training, a criminologist, jobbing criminologist by practice, I guess, working in a social policy department. Um, the riots seemed like the sort of subject that a social policy department and criminologists and all the rest might get involved in, but I had absolutely no plans to, to do any research. I was already, uh, I was at the time, still am, head of the social policy department here. It's quite a busy life. I was already behind on research. I had absolutely no intention of getting involved in anything new. My only hope was to try and catch up with the stuff that I was already, I had already promised and wasn't doing. Um, but things then began to kind of take shape. The, the next thing that happened was, as you, as you might expect, our political leaders made a variety of statements about the riots. They'd have been failing in their duty as politicians if they hadn't made some kind of statement. Um, Theresa May made a series of statements about gangs and gang culture. Um, David Cameron, and probably the most frequently repeated phrase, described the behavior in the riots as, quotes, criminality pure and simple. And Ken Clark, uh, the then Justice Secretary, uh, in an article in The Guardian, um, actually quite an interesting and thoughtful article, I thought, but, but no one will ever remember it because it contained the phrase feral underclass. And I think that's probably all anyone remembers about what Ken Clark had to say about the riots. Now, the interesting thing, or at least I think one of the interesting things about the riots, or two, was first of all, government set its face very quickly against any kind of public inquiry. There was to be no Lord Justice Scarman or equivalent for the 2011 riots. But secondly, these, these reactions, these phrases, and there were many more besides, were typical of the political reaction. The political reaction was one in which <coughs> diagnosis was contained in all the commentary. So our political leaders of all stripes, pretty much, were inviting us to imagine that they knew why there were riots, they knew why there were people out on the streets, um, and they, they therefore knew, assuming there should be any public policy response to the riots, they knew what that public policy response should be. So essentially, debate, discussion was closed down. And it was, it was in that context that um, the, percent, the, the possibility of a piece of research... Um, arose um, and it arose um, not as a result of anything I did at all um, this is slightly small print you may not be able to see it, I'll talk about the timetable very briefly in a second, it arose because I think um, the Guardian like um, many newspapers is confronted with um, a potentially fairly bleak future for journalism um, print media of various sorts are in fairly dramatic decline. The whole issue of where journalism is to go and what the future for professional journalism is is a fairly major issue. And, and one of the things that The Guardian and others are doing is thinking about whether there isn't a role for uh, longer reads, the possibility that journalists now, rather than, this, as it were, the classic um, find the story, print the story, move on form of journalism today, tomorrow getting involved in longer, bigger projects, which might look slightly more what social scientists at least would recognise as research projects. The Guardian had been at the forefront of reporting the riots, primarily through social media, but also through the, the print and online versions of the newspaper. And once things had begun to die down a little, they started to think, well, so what's the next step? We've collected a huge amount of data, there's the possibility of something much bigger here. Um, should, we, should we try and do something? And so um, they started to ring a variety of academics, 
um, to ask whether there might be, uh, whether there was any prospect, any room um, for some form of collaboration. Would it be interesting for the Guardian newspaper, the Guardian news and media organisation and the university to get together to collaborate on a research study? I was one of the people that they rang. Um, I assume that I was the first person who essentially said, yes, it might be a good idea. I don't think I was any more qualified than anyone else um, necessarily to respond to this, but respond I did. And this is then what happened. The, the, the project had two phases. Um, this is just the first phase. Um, the, the top left there, the riots were the 6th, and, 6th to the 9th of August. Um, the Guardian, then Guardian Special Projects editor Paul Lewis rang me on the 16th. I was just on the way to the National Theatre. I was just sitting outside. It was a nice summer evening, having a beer, thinking about going to the theatre. He rang. I answered. He said, do you fancy doing something? I said, well, let's meet for coffee and talk about it. We met for coffee the following week. We decided that we might do something a week later, we started talking to funders. Within 10 days, we launched the project. Um, simultaneously, we advertised for researchers to come and join the project. A couple of weeks after that, we shortlisted um, 55 people, I think, from the 450 applicants we got. We interviewed them all. We appointed 30 temporary researchers. We designed research instruments. We then trained the interviewers. We put them out into the field. We managed that whole process. <coughs> then I, um, uh, I recruited a series of analysts to do data analysis, a whole bunch of other things. So essentially, from the 6th of August through to the publication of the findings on the 5th of December, about 16 and a half weeks, was the first phase of reading the riots. We interviewed 270 rioters out in their communities in the main. These were not people who'd been arrested. Uh, and then subsequent, so over five or six days, we published the findings through The Guardian. Uh, and then in the following, uh, in early 2012, went on into a second phase where we looked more particularly at the criminal justice response to the riot. So that's the basic outline of it. It's social science at a pace, I think, which is a little unusual. Um, a little unusual also in its staffing. So this was a partnership, as I say, between um, a, a news media organisation, Guardian News and Media, and the LSE, um, and it was a partnership in the full sense of the word. So this was not a research project done by social scientists and then promulgated and published by journalists. This was a project at all stages done by both groups, from the design, the raising of the money, um, the recruitment of the staff, the design of the instruments, the analysis of the data and the writing up and publication of the findings. There were journalists and academics involved at all stages. Um, and it's also an unusual project. I'll come back to this briefly at the end. I ought to stop in a few minutes. Um, it's unusual in the sense that there isn't still a single standard traditional academic publication from this study. All the reading of the riots is on the Guardian's website. So everything thus far that's been published essentially has been published via the newspaper, either online or in the newspaper itself. Um, there are films, there are podcasts, there's a whole variety of other things, but nothing that looks like the stuff of everyday traditional social science. Um, it, in terms of impact, well, impact in one sense was huge, and I suspect we'll all come back to maybe discuss impact in a variety of ways. In terms of media coverage, 
30-odd pages in The Guardian, tons of pages in a variety of other print media across the world, not just in the UK, two Newsnight specials, a BBC verbatim drama, um, the Today programme, World at One. Um, we, Paul Lewis and I, did 50-odd uh, news media interviews just on the launch day itself, reaching between 50 and 60 million people was The Guardian's calculation. There were reactions to the research from the Home Secretary, the Leader of Opposition, the Shadow Home Secretary, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and on and on it went. We gave evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee, to the Victims and Communities Panel that had been set up by the government, and on and on that went too. It, won a, well, it was shortlisted for a Times Higher Educational Supplement Prize, it won a British Journalism Awards Prize, and so on, but... Whether that's what the research excellence framework really thinks of as impact, I'd be more than sceptical, really, but impact in one sense. So let me finish with just two sets of observations about reading the riots. Um, quite often when I do sort of slightly more extended presentations on the study, one of the questions I get asked is, um, would you do this again? Which I usually try and avoid answering. Um, but if I take it in slightly different terms, um, how did this work? Um, brilliantly, in all sorts of ways, I think. There are some caveats I'll come on to in a minute. Could we have done this? So one of the questions for me is, could we, the LSE, have done this without The Guardian? And I think the answer is probably pretty clearly no. Um, what were the advantages of working with a news organisation? Well, speed. There is absolutely no way we could have done the first phase of a major research study, organised it, done it, analysed it, written it up and got it out there in 16 or 17 weeks without a news organisation. We wouldn't even have contemplated. When I was first thinking about it, a colleague of mine, who I think of as being one of my more agile social scientific colleagues, advised me to take six months to think about it and then maybe go on, move on to the design of the study. Um, a can-do culture... There were a host of problems doing this study, a massive number of difficulties and hurdles to overcome. Um, I, I, I think I'm a reasonably kind of brave social scientist in a variety of ways, not risk-averse particularly, but there were a number of things where I thought, oh, it's just this is the end of it. It's never, we're never going to be able to do this, overcome this hurdle. That never, journalists never seemed to be phased. The size of the problem they were confronted with, it was just a question of, well, I don't know, what's the solution? But there would be one, and their assumption was, oh, we can get it done. They were flexible in a way we as universities are not. I think the LSE is a pretty flexible university, having worked in quite a few now. But the hiring staff, the moving of staff, the bringing of people in, the raising of resources, the creating of films and various other things, we simply wouldn't be able to do with anything like the speed or the flexibility or the possibility that a news organisation could bring to these things. Access, LSE's powerful institution has access to world leaders and all sorts of others, but not in the way that a news organisation has. The access to our political leaders, to all those other organisations, or some of them that I referred to in relation to impact, we got first and foremost through journalists, through the news organisation. And we also got to the powerless through journalists as well. The really difficult thing of the first phase of reading the rioters, reading the riots was reaching the rioters. Why would people out on the streets who had a lot to lose 
not least through the possibility, the very real possibility of arrest, prosecution, imprisonment and so forth, talk to us. And it was the news organisation, it was the newspaper and the people that they knew, the fixers effectively, that they could employ on our behalf that made it happen. And we would not have been able to do that at all, I think. The reach in a variety of ways, positively and negatively, um, that we could get, we would not have got on our own. Um, so our reach through radio and TV, a variety of other media, to opinion formers, politicians, the public generally, was massively enhanced through working with a news organisation. And then thirdly, and I think, I mean, again, the variety of explorations going on here uh, in the LSC about um, filmmaking and data visualisation, a variety of uh, kind of more or less cutting-edge ways of doing social science, but we're way behind news media organisations in the, in, the, in the things that they can bring to bear in those fields. Uh, and we have a lot to learn. And the really big advantage of all this, of course, was the traditional research story is um, dream up a project, hopefully raise the money, do the research, hope it's empirically sound and rigorous and all the rest of it, um, and then write it up and right at the end hope that you can get it out there in some way. So how am I going to get an audience for this? The great thing with the news organisation was the one thing I never worried about. I worried about almost every aspect of the project and to a degree still do. The one thing I never worried about was whether or not it would be a story. It was obviously going to be a story. It was being run by a news organisation. So I'd be interested to hear about the class survey and whether it's the same. And finally, challenges, and I'll stop. Um, the challenges, speed. Um, for The Guardian, for the journalists, um, I mean, yes, it was done at enormous speed, and those there who were responsible, Paul Lewis and others, for, for running it, were under a huge amount of pressure and stress to get the work done in the time that was available to do it. And yet, the other side of that is they also wanted to work even quicker, um, and so we were really, really, really under pressure the whole time to get something out incredibly fast. And there are dangers, big dangers in that. Now, I think we avoided most of them, I hope. But nonetheless, the, the pressure, there will always be a tension, I think, between universities and news organisations in trying to do these kinds of things. There were big cultural contrasts. Um, the most obvious one was interviewing. So we did in-depth, face-to-face, um, extended qualitative interviews with rioters, with police officers, with lawyers, with victims, and a huge number of others. The big contrast, if I put it at its crudest, was we wanted to do what I think of as traditional, open-ended, non-leading social scientific interviews. The journalists, initially at least, and this is a slight parody, but essentially wanted to do interviews which would elicit the answers that they felt they should get. I mean, the, the whole style of journalistic interview is, is for, of good, for good reason often is very different from social scientific interview. And there were a whole series of other, as it were, methodological things which, um, where, we, where we, we butted up against each other. Um, and a real sense of um, trying to resist the idea that you knew the story in advance. But... Um, the story would in some way emerge. I, I maybe won't talk about the headline because I've spoken for too long uh, already. The focusing on ends and means, my summary here would be if there's a real contrast culturally between news organisations on the one hand and universities on the other, it's that universities are 
over-preoccupied with the means by which we do these things, and news organisations are over-preoccupied with the end result, as it were. And the, if it works well, then maybe the best of us will get rubbed off and that a positive compromise will, will work. Reputationally, there were major issues. There were a whole series of circumstances in which it was really important not to mention that the research involves a news organisation or to mention it very carefully because the very idea of journalists being present would put people off. But equally, there were plenty of occasions when talking to people about the fact that this was academic research would simply have closed the door. What is the point? And so managing, as it were, the reputational issues um, was a very significant issue. Um, I'm going to leave impact till later because we'll come back to it. And thank you very much. All the reading the right stuff is on the web. Thank you. Okay, um, <clears throat> so um, our presentation, very short today, is called Class and Impact. It's just some reflections um, on doing the, the Great British Class Survey um, with the BBC. Now, on the 3rd of April, the BBC launched the results um, of the class survey. Myself and, other, and eight other sociologists who had worked on the project strained eagerly to see whether the launch would gain any media traction. We weren't expecting much. In fact, we'd been told by BBC News that the story might not even kind of gain any kind of uh, traction. But from the moment Evan Davies led on the story on the Today programme, everything went a little bit crazy. Uh, first, the BBC News um, featured the story on all, almost every regional and national format, um, as well as on the web, where it um, quickly became the BBC's most popular story of the year, with over 7 million hits. Next, the story was taken up um, in all the print media, both in the UK and all around the world. Um, and there was also a kind of astonishing reaction on social media with the consensus uh, on Twitter and Facebook that the survey is one of the most widely discussed pieces uh, of social science ever. Um, the results even spawned in one of the more tongue-in-cheek uh, byproducts a new political party, uh, the Emergent Service Workers Party, who took to the streets of Hoburn in May Day, on May Day, cans of beer in hand, uh, with the inspirational rallying call we're a political party, but the good kind. Um, so, you, as you can see, all in all, um, it was a pretty remarkable and exhausting uh, reaction. Um, and if all that sounds a bit like bragging, it's important to note uh, that not all the reaction was positive. It, um, it was distinctly mixed, and I think Fiona will talk a little bit about that, and hopefully we can discuss uh, that in, in the discussion. Um, just in this brief talk, though, I just... I think our aim is really just to reflect on what was a quite a unique project um, and talk about whether this kind of collaborative model might have some potential for doing public social science in the future. Um, now, the dramatic impact of the survey is particularly remarkable considering that nine months earlier, in summer 2011, uh, the project was actually in serious danger of vanishing without a trace. Um, now, to start at the beginning... Um, the project originated as an experiment um, developed by the BBC's Lab UK. 
Now, for those that don't know, the Lab UK was set up in 2009 with the intention of creating a series of mass participation online experiments. It had two main aims in terms of furnishing this idea of public value. First, to yield peer-reviewed scientific knowledge. And second, uh, and very much flowing from this, popular content for broadcast. So it developed a number of interactive web-based experiments, um, the most high-profile being the Great Personality Test, which was fronted by uh, Robert Winston. And the model for these experiments is always the same. The BBC first asked leading academics uh, to devise a web questionnaire on a a topic they think will capture the public interest. Uh, And then Lab UK hosts the survey um, and delivers the data to the academics to analyse. So the class survey began life in 2010 uh, when the BBC contacted Professor Mike Savage um, and Fiona and asked them to design a questionnaire on social class, which was subsequently launched in 2011 with a quite high-profile campaign. So Mike swiftly uh, swapped his, his holy jumpers for a freshly ironed shirt and appeared on the, uh, the hallowed BBC One show sofa. <laughs> and there were also two uh, BBC documentaries on class which encouraged viewers to take the test. Um, and the take-up was, was really good. Um, eventually, we received a sample um, of 161,000, which is by far the largest uh, survey that's ever been conducted on social class here in the UK. Um, now, I don't want to uh, go over the, the findings of the survey in depth. I'm sure many of you have already heard them. Um, but just very briefly, we were trying to move away from a the traditional, perhaps, uh, occupationally-driven model of of, of analysing social class. We were using a capitals approach, which is very much rooted in the uh, theory of Pierre Bourdieu. And very briefly, our our results indicated that looking at measures of economic, social and cultural capital, social class divisions in Britain were better described uh, in a seven-class model rather than the traditional uh, categories, upper, middle and working. And you can see the, the classes there on screen. There are two main kind of head, headline aspects of this model. Um, a first, uh, clear polarisation uh, in British society among those at the top and bottom. So on the one hand, we were able to discern a very distinctive elite whose sheer economic advantage sets it apart from all the other classes. Um, and at the opposite extreme, we identified 15% of the population, uh, what we term the precariat, um, who are marked by a lack of any significant economic, cultural or social capital. And then the second finding um, was one of, of, of quite obvious fragmentation in the middle of the class structure. So while the established middle class um, was perhaps predictably the biggest class in our analysis, representing 25% of the population, the majority of respondents actually fell uh, into class groups um, that are more difficult to place using conventional uh, class analysis. And here we're particularly interested, um, I think, in two of these classes, the emergent service workers, who you heard a little bit about before, and the new affluent workers. Uh, And these were kind of groups that didn't seem to embody conventional cultural or social capital, but it appeared to uh, um, gain still quite uh, significant levels of economic capital. So for us, many of these people seem to be the children of the traditional um, 
occupations, traditional working class occupations, and might there, therefore be said to exemplify this kind of stark break uh, in working class culture that was initiated through deindustrialization, uh, immigration, and the restructuring uh, of urban space. Um, as I said, just, that's just a very potted uh, version of the findings. Um, please do ask us other questions if you have them at the end. Uh, and I suppose it's just worth reiterating before I pass over to Fiona that our aim was not really in any way to claim um, that we'd somehow uh, effectively captured every dimension of social division, but instead to kind of restart the sociological conversation about class in a way that very much tried to look um, beyond the traditional occupational measures. I'll hand over to Fiona. Okay, so now I'm going to probably repeat some of the uh, points made by Tim, but I hope in, in the best possible sense. Uh, and what I'm going to talk about, first of all, is, is what, what didn't go so well, because actually I want to finish on the high of what did go well, um, because I want to give you a sense of, of a lot of fun that we had um, and, and so on as, as part of doing this research. So methodological issues, which is a bit about issues around means of how we do research. So inevitably, when you do a web survey, you're not going to get a representative sample survey as you would in conventional research. Uh, and that happened for us with, with our web survey. Um, it was heavily skewed towards an advantaged middle class, um, typical middle BBC audience, if you like. Um, and then, of course, our disadvantaged working classes, so to speak, were underrepresented. And even those who, who participated, who would have had low cultural, economic and social capital, would not be considered typical. So you know, you'd expect people to be playing about on, on the uh, UK lab site and the BBC website to have higher cultural capital. So confronted with that problem, the, the BBC... Um, was very resourceful and flexible and, and just uh, funded a face-to-face -face, um, sample survey uh, to facilitate a much more representative picture. So we both had the web survey and the traditional um, survey and the results from both. Uh, and then we had to engage in some fairly clever statistical analysis uh, looking at the national survey results and doing various weightings or t um, relating it to the web survey and had to take lots of advice, including from some key people at, at the LSE, it must be said as well. Now, some members of the academic community have not been overly impressed by this. Uh, Mike Savage was on Thinking Aloud, the Radio 4 programme, uh, and colleagues such as Colin Mills uh, and Danny Dawling have been fairly quick off the mark in terms of um, some of the methodological uh, shortcomings of, of our research. And undoubtedly, there were some drawbacks, um, but as, as any research, um, there are pros and cons to how you do that, do that research. And it raises that issue, of Tim says, of, of perhaps the academic community being pre quite preoccupied with the means of, of how we did something and, and methodological issues. Another set of issues that we had to confront with was not what was not going so well um, is working with an organisation that's going undergoing considerable change uh, and their views of time and, and um, what time we had for analysis. So 
With the BBC, it was when we were doing our research, it was going through a period where it had just had a poor financial settlement in terms of the BBC licence fee. There was a lot of organisational restructuring going on, a lot of voluntary redundancies and so on. Um, quite unrelated to that, though, uh, the instigator of the whole project, Philip Trippenbar, actually left for a new job on the day of the launch. So I came down to London for a party to meet this person for the first guy that I'd only ever interacted with on the internet, you know, through email, uh, and he was leaving on the very day that the project was launched. And, of course, with that sort of thing, as many other researchers have found, is then you've got a project which has... Nobody who kind of owns it. Uh, you find yourself working with different sets of people. So particularly Mike and I were going to meetings at the BBC where we'd meet a different set of people every time. So we had to keep going round and round in circles in some ways in terms of explaining the project to uh, a new group of people and then that person will have been disappeared and for the next meeting and so on. So we had a heck of a lot of project meetings, meeting different sets of people with different sets of questions, um, some of whom, of course, didn't uh, necessarily like the research while, while others did. Um, then we had different conceptions of time for, for the work and, and for the analysis. We did have to do some quite complex things because of the nature of the research. Um, so for the BBC um, and for the academic team. So the BBC would have liked us to come up with uh, quick results. We weren't as impressive as Tim and his team. Um, uh, and you know, there were sort of tensions about that. We couldn't deliver the results very quickly, in part because we were looking at how to do the analysis in terms of the web survey uh, and the nationally representative survey. So we were writing producing a lot of preliminary results. We were doing short reports. You wouldn't believe the amount of email traffic that went around all these teams, uh, members of the team. And then probably, though, one summer, perhaps was it 2011, we had something called a reboot meeting. So this is a good turn of phrase to use whenever you're stuck, is having a reboot meeting where we just kind of... The BBC actually team said, oh, okay, we're going to leave you alone now because they'd sent us huge amounts of requests constantly wanting results very quickly and they realised in a way that they had to step back and allow us to do the analysis that we wanted to do. And in a way that meeting was a real turning point for allowing us to get on uh, and do things. Uh, then an issue you could say of what also perhaps didn't go so well, but uh, Sam and I were debating that before this presentation might be a bit churlish to say, is the nature of public discussion. So it's not easy translating complex academic findings into media-friendly formats, but we did this thing with, with the BBC class calculator, and it has also just won one of these journalism prizes as well. But, of course, for the majority of 7 million people who were looking at this class calculator, that's all the, what the research was, uh, five questions uh, and placing yourself in, into a class. Um, and so a heck of a lot of the discussion on Facebook and Twitter and so on really was very much confined to this kind of class calculator. As I say, it was assumed that this was it, and most people's preoccupations was where in the seven classes they actually fit, okay? So at one level, as kind of academics, we kind of wanted a wider sort of debate, but that's sort of tough luck, really, and that's how it goes. Yeah. So those are some of the issues that you could say we confronted, but what went well? 
Undoubtedly, as with working with The Guardian, working with the BBC, you do get incredible resource behind you as a, uh, as a, you know, a, a news-making organisation. So we had huge resource at the time of the launch of the web survey. Uh, Mike, as you've heard, went on the one show. I'm not sure that he ironed his shirt for that, but (laughs) he he was on the one show. Um, There was then a lot of attention in terms of which generated the the high level of participation in the survey at the beginning. Uh, Then, of course, all the resources kicked in at the time of the launch of the results. So I went on BBC Breakfast. I then caught the train down from Manchester and went on with the world at one. Then I was put in a little box where I did something like 16 radio interviews with local radio stations and then met up with the rest of the BBC team. And Mike was doing the same to do uh, a conference plenary at at the BSA uh, conference at that day. on that day. So, and everything was coordinated in such a way as the launch of a journal article, BBC, Sage Publications also uh, giving open access to the piece as well for, for a short period of time. And that in itself also then created increasing participation with a further 200,000 people doing actually the full web survey after the research was done. What also went well. So despite all the hiccups that we experienced, it did actually happen. We put in a huge amount of unfunded research time, uh, just snuck it in amongst everything else that we do in a working day, talking about questions here and there that would go into the uh, web survey. And at times we didn't know whether it was going to see the the light of day. It seemed to get stuck, Um, but somehow it did happen. Uh, Undoubtedly within the BBC... A couple of critical people did make a difference. There was a guy called Richard Cable um, who stayed interested in the project before moving across to the BBC in Northern Ireland, um, who was always a great supporter. And then probably a really critical person for us was a guy called Michael Orwell, a BBC producer who worked at the BBC uh, Lab UK site, who stayed with the project the whole time despite all these people moving around. And I think he was really patient and understood the academic issues at stake, not least because his partner is also an academic, I think, and there was something about that. There were kind of never any threats to our autonomy, although, of course, you could say there is a desire for a new story, um, so there is a desire for a story. There is a desire for some, showing that there's change. Um, so you could say there is a push to be able to show that there's been some sort of change. But there were no particular interventions over and beyond that. What we're also going to experience is... Um, Very sadly, the UK lab site is closing down um, uh, and the BBC is uh, kind of repackaging its knowledge uh, kind of activity in different ways. It conducted uh, something like nine or 11, sorry, um, experiments, um, as we've heard, the big personality test and so on. um, And we were one of that group listed there. What we've also found is because you, when you did the survey, you had a unique identification number, and we can see, or we will be through the BBC uh, and further work with them, you know, who did our survey, who did some of the other surveys. So, for example, 29,000 people that did our research, uh, our experiment, also did the experiment, How Musical Are You?, 
Um, we've got 23,000 people who've done the big risk task. So who knows, we can do some interesting class analysis on musical taste and risk-taking and so on. But we've got a whole new data set there um, that we've got to explore, and all this will be going into the public domain with, with data services in due course. And then finally, lessons learned. A heck of a lot of patience and kind of hanging in there. Good relationships with people. Making the best of a situation when it's not ideal. Uh, understanding people's different needs and pressures on both sides uh, and being flexible, again, as Tim said, and trying to be creative to continue to make progress on a project even though you're not sure it's all going to happen. Unlike most research, it's, it's always a bit messy and this project was as messy as any other. And, of course, the scientific value of the work uh, will take time to be established and then in terms of thinking about lessons learned from impact, in no particular order, of course you don't have very much control. You very much have to take the bad with the good. Um, so after a while you start filtering out what you don't like hearing so much and focusing on one or two very nice things. Uh, you have to be careful not to be too precious or churlish about you know, what's coming your direction because very important things are being learnt from public reaction to projects like this. Um, you know, how people were discussing where they fit into the class calcula calculator, why they didn't like the questions on social contacts and so on. For us, as I say, we've got now new data in terms of all the Twitter um, work that we can do. Um, and in a way, what it was was an incredible f ride, but we actually had massive fun seeing something come off after quite a long period of duration. Okay, thank you. We've got a couple of people who have got a microphones, and if you wouldn't mind waiting for those just so the podcast that we're doing of this session can pick up your question. So if I can, uh, who wants to, uh, to start off some of the questions? Um, I'll take two or three, if that's all right, and then answer them in groups. If you wouldn't mind saying who you are and then your question. Uh, yes, I'm John, John King from Royal Holloway. Um, thank you. It's really exciting. What's really exciting about these is it shows the appetite that the public has for social research. Uh, yeah, sociologists aren't irrelevant. Um, uh, but, but I wanted to ask Sam and Fiona a question about, uh, I suppose, policy impact and whether it had the degree or the type of policy impact you might have hoped for, because it got a large degree of exposure through the BBC. But my impression was that it didn't quite catch fire amongst the think tanks and the policy world in the way that they're reading the riots, and maybe lots of, you know, sort of contextual reasons for that. But whether the the, the message there was that message about um, the lack of access to resources and capital that the precariat have, whether that actually came over, whether that got a little bit lost. Okay, who else would? Yeah, could you? Hi, uh, Richard Berry, Democratic Audit. You've all spoken quite a lot about what the media organisations you worked with um, or what you got from the media organisations um, in terms of like um, questioning, reaching people in the communities, um, obviously the attention they can give you, but I was wondering what do you think they got from working with academics that they couldn't have got otherwise? Because I think 
knowing that probably helps other academics um, reach out to media, media organisations and offer them things that, um, that are unique to academics. <coughs> Well, you have to think about some. I did get one from Twitter. So um, Jonathan Downey wanted to ask whether the panel worried that large-scale sort of national projects like this might crowd out funding for vital smaller ones. So that's just one to add. So he wants to kick off. Do you want to start at that end, Sam? Do you want to...? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you asked a question about policy impact. I mean, we, we were just talking a little bit before about... Um, I think the fact that um, maybe slightly in, in contrast to, with Tim's study, obviously there was an element of the way in which you present findings when you're working with an organisation that's publicly funded like the BBC in terms of um, perhaps uh, the emphasis on, 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 on what your findings mean. You know, I think they were to some extent quite descriptive in the way in which they were um, presented through the, through the BBC website. And I think that was, to some extent, the, the nature of the particular partnership that we, were, that we were doing. And I think for us now, um, subsequent media interviews, um, subsequent academic publications, and hopefully subsequent um, impact work will perhaps be a little bit more critical um, and will have, a bit more of, will have a bit more of an emphasis on what are the implications of this in terms of inequality, in terms of... Um, poverty and all of those kinds of dimensions which I think some people perhaps somewhat misread because of the way that the research interfaced through the BBC website that there, that there wasn't any of that thinking going on it very much was but I think I don't know if Fiona if you'd agree with that <clears throat> yeah. I was going to give you an example which touches on issues to do with rights where there was an immediate sort of policy implications or people could see but it wasn't in the UK it was actually in Sweden uh, so I was immediately invited by a government department to go and do a presentation in Sweden about the research, and it happened to be the weekend of the riots in Stockholm. Um, and they thought that the research was even more pertinent in the, con in the context of thinking about the importance of culture and cultural participation in terms of issues around integration. It, I mean, it became very pertinent in the context of the issues around the riots, um, but Sweden, for example, is, is addressing issues of how do you keep um, small cities or sorry, small towns alive and avoiding depopulation, the importance of cultural participation and culture and engagement in small cities in the countryside, which was important to somewhere like Sweden. So it wasn't an angle which I'd have imagined that the research would get picked up in, in that way, uh, but that was a way in which it was quite quickly. And let me take policy impact very briefly, and then I'll say a word or two about the the other quest, the other questions, um, and hand back to colleagues. I mean, reading the riots looks like it has policy implications, and we thought it did. Um, and indeed, the Home Secretary came along to the conference in December 2011 and announced, much to our surprise, actually immediately after having been very rude to us, announced um, a review of police stop-and-search powers, which um, is rumbling on today. In fact, she stood up in the House of Commons and announced public consultation leading on from that today. So, I mean, that, that in ref terms might vaguely look like um, impact. But I think the difficulty with this is that, I mean, this is much more a criticism of the ref than anything else. I mean, it's just not the way policy impact works, not the way the policy world works. 
policy world is frightfully complicated. Um, and discerning influence on public policy of any sort is extremely difficult to do. Um, there are usually, if you can even identify, as it were, the sources of influence, they're many and varied. And uh, people involved in the public policy world, not least politicians, will usually lie um, if you ask them directly about the sources of influence, and they'll certainly usually claim it was their own inspiration rather than anything else. Um, so I'm, I'm deeply dubious about the way in which this whole notion of impact is operationalized currently in the academic world. And I think you know, the, the, the likelihood is that the, um, there are some fairly profound unintended consequences likely to lead from this. I think so it, it, it behoves us not to be, I think, too precious about it and get too, too uptight about it. On the other two, two very quickly, and I'll hand back... Um, very good question. So what, what, if anything, did journalists get from academics, given that we gained so much from them? Um, quite a lot, I think. Um, quite a lot methodologically. Um, but I'd boil it down to credibility. Um, no one would have taken... The, I mean, they would have been wrong to do so, but the reality, I think, is no one really would have taken reading the riots seriously had it only been the Guardian newspaper doing it, it would have been perceived completely differently by, um, by the public, I think, by politicians, policymakers, by a whole variety of others. Um, it would have been a different product too, but even assuming they would have been able to do it without the partnership uh, in the way we eventually did it together, I don't think it would have ever had the credibility. And, I think, I mean, and similarly, we gained a lot of credibility from them, but that's crucial, I think. And finally, do large-scale projects crowd out smaller ones? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, speaking only for reading the riots, it looks like a large project, and indeed, in some respects, it's a large project. The funding that we had for the first phase was £120,000, um, which is a lot of money if it's my personal wealth. But in terms of research funding in the modern environment, it's a tiny sum of money. Um, we did a second phase, which had a slightly smaller sum of money. So in the end, it was just it was slightly north of £200,000 for a year-long project of enormous scale. I don't think it crowded anything else except any kind of personal life that I might otherwise have had. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to add, I think... Also for the BBC, I think Sam and I would probably agree that it was credibility for the BBC project. Uh, they were very keen to have academics on board from day one to give it the kind of intellectual standing that they hoped that the project would have and the credibility. Um, and hopefully our input was significant in terms of helping them with you know, the design of the survey, the kind of methodological issues and, and so on. So I think that sort of same mm. issue around credibility. The BBC wanted to be seen to be producing research that was, you know, vigorous and of, of academic quality, so they were very keen for that to happen. Um, and yes, in terms of crowding out other research, given that we were slotting it in here, there and everywhere without any money, I don't think we'd crowded anybody else out. Um, uh, and I suspect there's room for all, all sorts of this type of research going forward, yeah. Okay, great. So can we take another round of questions? Um, yeah, there's a gentleman. Saul Rosenberg. I'm a psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco. I was on holiday and 
happened to see this, and since I've grown up with race riots for the last 40 years, it caught my attention. I think it's a very bold experiment. It's easy for anyone to criticize this on methodological grounds, but coming to your defense, the question is, what inferences did you draw? What implications are there? And does the way you collected the data justify those inferences? I have never heard anything about the study. What were your inferences? What are the implications of the study for public policy? What further questions and hypotheses does the study raise? Thank you. And there's a question just there. Hi. I'm Nicola Jones. I work for Palgrave Macmillan. And I thought it was quite interesting that you talked about the different ways in which the results were published. So Tim, um, the Reading the Riots was published entirely through The Guardian, and you mentioned that there hasn't been a traditional academic publication, whereas Fiona, you mentioned that a peer-reviewed journal article appeared and was presumably embargoed, released on the same day as the results were released, um, and made open access for a while afterwards. I wanted to ask both groups what they felt could be the role of traditional academic publishers in projects like this and with disseminating impact more generally. One more question before we go back to, to the panel. There's one down front. Okay, so Pat Dunleavy. I, I just wanted to ask is this citizen social science in the sense of, let's say we've got lots of astronomers, they've got lots of telescope pictures, they haven't got time to go through and classify them, the automatic classification system doesn't work. They found that, you know, outsourcing it to lots of citizen scientists. Is, is a very productive and useful thing. And both these projects, I think, are sort of halfway to being citizen social science. But, it, you know, they've got elements of co-production in especially the class survey one. But there's still, like, citizens are not involved in really in the analysis. They're sort of more the kind of raw materials or whatever. Uh, so I, I, I would just, any reflections on, could we move towards citizen social science, which would be a new kind of thing, I think. Great, okay. Do you want to start this end this time? Okay. Um, so in relation to that first question, did you want, were you applying that question to both projects or, or particularly the right? Uh, you were, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, what we were trying to do in our research is, as Sam was saying, develop, we've developed a capitals approach to class, which is based on earlier thinking that we've, the t members of the team had been involved in. We're, we're talking about class um, in terms of uh, people having different types of capitals which confer advantage and disadvantage. And what we're trying to suggest is... Um, with those bundles of, of advantage and disadvantage, this is how classes get reproduced over time and space, despite, for example, government attempts to reduce class inequalities for various measures. Um, so what we've done to some extent in the first stage is to kind of describe the bundles of capitals that people might have, those different types of economic, cultural and social capital, and we've identified, if you like, bottom-up rather than top-down, a variety of different classes 
classes. What we now want to do as we go forward with that analysis is try to offer explanations of how class is reproduced by people having different sets of advantages and disadvantages and how class inequalities then are so enduring despite, for example, government interventions to do that. And we'll be looking at how those different types of capitals like cultural capital confer advantage and can be mobilised in that way. So that's what we'll, we'll be doing there. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, the second issue, in terms of how publishers can be involved in, in piece of research, I'm not sure if we should acknowledge that, this, but the BBC were very keen for us to try and see if we could publish in Nature. We got a, redu- a rejection within two hours, and all you could do, <laughs> all you could do was laugh. Um, but it would have been really nice, actually, to have, if we'd have got it in the sense of the last piece of sociology that appeared in Nature was in 1973, and it was actually in cl- on class um, uh, from the Cambridge Social Stratification Group. So we could have celebrated 40 years if we'd have pulled that one off. But as I say, it came back pretty quickly, and all you could do was laugh. So, um, but yeah, no, what was amazing in a way is, again, because of having the BBC resource, being able to talk about to SAGE, being able to talk about to the BBC in terms of, uh, sorry, the BSA in terms of its annual conference, how we brought all those three kind of forces together to get maximum publicity. Uh, And I guess traditional publishers might want to think about, you know, how they manage book launches with authors, um, how that coincides with conferences, and how that could all be exploited through sort of new new media and things like that. So all of that really came together for us. I mean, I don't think we probably had a sense that it was all going to come together until the last few days, and it did. Um, and and then it just had this it had this quite in, incredible effect. Yeah. And then just in terms of citizenship. Um, yeah, Sam and I again were talking before this about how it would have been, would be quite fun now to go to kind of do qualitative research on the different groups and also sort of engage them with the uh, with the class calculator. So people were kind of doing it, sort of you know, putting themselves into the classes. What would it be like to sit and do qualitative interviews with individuals or groups and saying, "What are you doing with this class calculator?" Why don't you like this question? Why are you turning it around so that you're in this class rather than this class? And just kind of really unpacking some of that sort of stuff and getting that, feeding that back into our own thinking about issues around class would be great fun to do. And so you can always think of a million different ways in which you could explore it further. Just um, just to follow up on the second question, which which I think is really important... um, I mean, for us, um, as we kind of mentioned a little bit, I think one of the tensions was this class calculator, which had a huge, which had a huge impact, um, but that to some extent simplified the findings um, and in a way that was very successful with the public. But often, I felt it. it and this is my my personal opinion. Um, the some it, it, it turned off quite a few bright lay people um, who who perhaps just saw that. And thought this what well, this is the research five questions and in a, a pretty map, and I think the role there of of having a um, a link to a publication and even perhaps you know the fact that it was linked to a publication it was ten thousand words perhaps we even missed a trick there and if it c- could have been something that was a bridge between you know this incredibly 
um, visually attractive but very simplistic class calculator and traditional academic article, then we could have captured even more people at that point because I think that's the crucial juncture is that people are interfacing with, with websites and over a matter of seconds um, and it's, it's about trying to capture their interest by giving them lots of different ways to... to um, <coughs> taking them on, thank you for the question about um, inferences uh, and the study. The, the, in fact, um, the Guardian, in thinking about doing this study, were much influenced by um, the American riots of the 1960s, and in particular the Detroit riot in 1967, which um, was the subject of a very quick study by um, the Detroit Free Press and, uh, and the local university, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize, rather putting British Journalism Awards in the, in the shade, I'm afraid. Um, and it, but so, so there's a direct link with, with, as it were, kind of US history here. Inferences, I mean, as I think were numerous, I mean, partly they were about policing, stop and search, stop and frisk, as it would be in the US. Um, and, and that has had some traction, and, and I've, I've talked about that a little bit. That's still ongoing. I think a lot of the other kind of um, implications of reading the rights were about um, the position of contemporary youth um, in the UK, in particular in our poorest urban communities, and they were about mm-hmm. a set of policy implications relating to a, an increasingly, at least in their own perceptions, disenfranchised, excluded group of young people who felt that um, current economic and public policy changes around austerity were particularly focused on them and their lives and were reducing for them the already very diminished opportunities that were available for people like them and living in their neighbourhoods. So I think there are, there, there are a series of inferences, implications for, for education, for the transition for school to work, for just local provision in terms of time and leisure and, and, and so forth. Um, and on we could go. Publishing, I've talked to quite a few publishers about this. I mean, some of, some of the, some of, one of the reasons that there are, there are no formal academic publications out of the reading the rights is, um, well, depending on how one wants to play it, either I didn't have time to write them or I couldn't be bothered. Um, and, um, and I'm kind of probably, um, if it doesn't sound too horribly pompous, sufficiently well established not to need to worry about that as much as I might otherwise have to but I don't think that's a happy position to be I think it's a deeply unhappy position to be in and I I mean uh, there will be academic publications but I I I wish there were but to answer the question um I think there's a real gap in the market for something which is really quick turnaround on the one hand and yet peer reviewed okay as peer review remains something which is of deep importance in academic life, rightly or wrongly, depending on how it's managed. I do think that... So you have Palgrave Pivot and things like that. So it's just a little advertisement on behalf of Palgrave. Um, you know, so, so, so publishers are experimenting... Social science publishers are experimenting with a variety of short-format publications, quick turnaround, shorter word length, and so forth. What I, what I think we haven't necessarily yet managed in the social science world is to marry peer review with that shorter format quick turnaround process. I think there are ways of doing it but maybe that's for the 
for the pub. But that's where I think the implications are. Um, citizen social science. Um, Patrick asked me earlier on, just before we started all this, whether I thought there'd be riots this summer. Um, my slightly flippant answer was, I don't think the weather's going to be good enough. Um, but then Patrick told me, actually, the forecasts are quite good for July, so <laughs> that, that, that could be quite worrying. Um, reading the riots wasn't citizen social science. Do I think there's a role for citizen social science? Absolutely here, and I think it's, it's very much in, in parallel with the previous answers. So any form of future, just taking this particular area, any future form of um, street disorder of any major scale, I think there are a variety of ways of quickly being out on the streets, using social media to enable people to talk broadly and collect their responses uh, about what they're doing and why they're doing it and their perceptions and how they feel they're treated and so forth, involving them in a much more direct way in a, in a social scientific project than even we were able to do. So I think there are real possibilities in, in that field. Um, there'd be some dangers, physical and otherwise, um, but I'm actually quite interested in that as a possibility, so who knows, maybe I wasn't going to do any more rights research, maybe I will. <laughs> Great, well, we've got about five more minutes, so there is time for you know, maybe one or so question if someone's got the... Oh, this one. Uh, my question is uh, to you, to New Bern. <laughs> um, I found it very constructive and uh, insightful of Guardian coming to you and trying to look into what's happening, riots, and um, I myself learned a lot from that series, and uh, whereas it's very easy to label what has happened as crime and looting, whatsoever. But then, uh, this year, I got so disappointed with the cover of Guardian after this Woolwich event. I was uh, wondering if you felt the same, because that was exactly the opposite. Um, way of approaching what happened. They just labeled the thing as terror just in the minute. And I was thinking, what happened to that insightful um, newspaper in one night? Okay, have we got one last one? Anyone wants to come in? It's because we mentioned free drinks at the start. That's what's going on. But anyway, that, do you want to just take Well, thanks for the, for the question. I mean, um, so, I mean, the question was concerning the way in which the Guardian reported the the, the murder of the off-duty soldier in in Woolwich and the front page, um, which was backing away from the word I was going to use, not very good. Um, I I um, I was going to use a much stronger word. Um, I thought it was dreadful. I mean, really, really dreadful bit of reporting, and I I. I don't know why it, it happened. Um, it was, there, there were a couple of tabloid newspapers which had a very similar front cover, and my values or prejudices or whatever, I was possibly slightly less surprised that, that they went for that. Most of the tabloids, in fact, as well as the broadsheets, didn't lead either with the most explicit pictures, which I thought was sensible and right and proper, appropriate and so forth, but also avoided some of the reporting which you're referring to. Yeah, I was... I was I was, I was pretty shocked. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I mean, having spent time in a newsroom, I mean, a, long, a lot of time in a newsroom, seeing how newspapers are produced, um, I mean, on the one hand, an awful lot of thought and planning and care goes into how the stories are written and how the newspaper looks uh, and so forth. 
Um, and yet, I think there are times when um, s- some of the things that we've just been talking about, the pace at which, notwithstanding what I've said about care, the pace at which some of these things are sometimes put together leads to lapses in, in judgment. I, I, on one of the slides I had earlier, I skipped because of time. We, we spent a lot of time on the riots project thinking about um, that six days of reporting that we, that we had. Um, how the stories would be divided up, what we would do on the first day and then on subsequent days. And so in the full knowledge that the the first day would always set the tone for what happened subsequently. Um, And we we decided that we would go for a story on policing. Um, Though the front page of The Guardian on that Monday morning was actually a very general... It's the only time I've seen bullet points in a a story. It didn't actually look like a a newspaper article at all. So it was a fairly general summarising article. It feels very naive now in retrospect. What I didn't think about was the headline. Uh, It didn't occur to me to think about the headline. I was probably tired and probably didn't think it was my business anyway. um, I just felt fortunate to be part of the whole thing. But I woke up... Um, the following morning, the launch day, um, to be picked up by a radio car to do the things that we all ended up doing and got the driver to pull in at a petrol station so I could get a copy of the paper and the headline was Blame the Police, Why the Rioters Say They Took Part. And, you know, who in their right mind would think that was an appropriate summary for a piece of research. And it wasn't just a news story. It was the summary of a piece of research. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And um, I did make my views known fairly strongly. Um, people didn't talk to me for a while. As a consequence of that, relationships were pretty fractured. I think I was probably much less patient than Fiona. Sounds like she might have been with some of her colleagues, uh, to my discredit. But it's another example, I think, of just sometimes these things, even in those journals that we feel more confident about, things go a bit awry. Mm -hmm. Did did you just have one more? Do you want a last word on... on, um, Not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think probably all of us would say is that it was really exciting to be involved in this kind of research. Um, It was also fun as social scientists to work as part of a big team, which doesn't just include academics but wider group of people, Um, because often academia can be a fairly solitary exercise. Uh, You know, I was talking about earlier when we were doing our... um, discussion um you know often academia teaches us to be quite solitary to be working away at you know sort of hard on our uh, academic articles and books for ref exercises and so on and actually a public social science forces us to go out there and to engage um in much different ways than in some ways academic training sets you up for um but it is actually a very liberating experience and, and, yeah, really great fun being able to go out there and pick up stuff very quickly, not be overly preoccupied by method while at the same time bringing your methodological expertise uh, and really just being in the moment uh, and being able to participate in a piece of research in that sort of way and getting the public engagement with it. Great. Well, um, if you wouldn't mind... Um, joining me in thanking our speakers very much for their time.